Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So if you could please uh, lead us in prayer, Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We gather, Lord, this evening in your presence. You continuously reach out to us with love, with grace. As we reflect upon the great gifts of the sacraments by which you are truly with us, enlighten our minds and hearts to believe more firmly, to trust more completely in your love. Together, let us pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. And I'm going to take one minute of his time, and just to express my gratitude to Sabatino and to the Institute of Catholic Culture. And I truly believe that St. Leo's Parish has been blessed in many ways by your presence. And it is certainly my hope that we can continue the relationship that we have for many years to come and uh, eventually moving into larger spaces, hopefully. <laughs> I might even have to do a building campaign just to, <laughs> just to hold you all. But it really is an honor and a privilege to be here with you. I wanted to stay here and listen and learn something from the subdeacon this evening. But I have a high school youth group I have to go to. So keep me in your prayers. <laughs> Thank you very much, Father. Well, welcome to you all this evening. And ask you, how many of you invited somebody to come with you tonight? Hmm, Catholics, we got about, what, 10%? All right. We have to have an evangelical spirit about us. Right, Neil? Right. Neil just met some uh, what, Baptists that came to your door. And he, he was ready to close the door, and, uh, and he said... I don't attend all those institute programs for nothing. He opened the door, and the guys, they couldn't get an e a word in edgewise. So, good job, Neil. And I remember last time at, on our, in my introduction when we had our program on the Didache, and we had, it was just jammed, right? And I said, I said to the group um, that, and now this doesn't include you, I'm just always reminded of it when we come to scripture programs where there, we, we do sometimes have a couple empty seats, and it's that the secret program, right, on the Didache or on uh, the Gnostic Gospels or on the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, that everybody wants to come to and learn something more that they don't already know. And unfortunately, I would say most of us, myself included, don't nearly know enough about the sacred scriptures. But we think we do, okay? We want something new, something to kind of, you know, dazzle the, the, the eyes and, and uh, tingle the ears. Um, and I know that doesn't apply to you because you're here tonight. It's just I'm always reminded of that um, when I see a couple, couple empty seats. Um, so please invite somebody to come with you next time.
Okay, to our subject at hand. As we enter into the sacraments, we're going to start maybe a, a, a bit slowly tonight to root ourselves in the meaning of the sacraments in sacred scripture uh, in general. Okay? How did the early Christians, how did the apostles, how did Christ our Lord understand the sacraments? How are they communicated to us in the sacred scriptures? And tonight, uh, just here at the beginning, I want to encourage you that our Lenten journey is a time in which the church offers us the opportunity to enter back into the, uh, that Lenten journey towards our baptism. Lent initially in the church was a time of preparation simply for the catechumenate, okay, to be baptized on Holy Pascha on the day of the resurrection, to enter into our Lord's death and resurrection, as we'll talk about tonight. For many of us, our baptism is something that's relegated to our far distant memory, if at all. For most of us, it may consist of a picture or a baptismal dress stuck in our closet that our mother handed on to us after many years. But it, it's not an active ingredient in our spiritual life. Nothing could be farther from the truth of the life of the first Christians. Their baptism was the day in which their life changed. And that change in their life was an active principle in their journey with Christ throughout their entire life on this earth. There was no such thing as Franciscan spirituality and Dominican spirituality. There was Christian spirituality in which we followed Christ in our Lenten journey. We died with Christ and rose again with Him. As again, we'll talk about more tonight. And I want to encourage you to start to consider that. What does your baptism mean in your life? Is it an active principle in your walk with Christ. And we have an opportunity during the Lenten season now to reflect upon baptism and to make it, once again, that active principle that it's supposed to be. Lent, the 40 days of Lent, properly for the catechumenate, who will then be baptized into Christ and join the body of Christ, we all make our Lenten journey with them and for them. That's the purpose of our Lenten journey. That with them, we journey with Christ. So that as they are baptized into Him, we also, as members of the body of Christ, renew our baptism. That's why we renew our baptismal promises at the Easter liturgy. Because this entire Lenten journey is an opportunity for us to enter into that mystery once again. I don't want to spend our next two nights together simply giving you apologetic verses. Okay, Many of you may have been coming tonight saying, oh great, we're going to talk about John chapter 6. We're going to prove the Protestants wrong. Okay, Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. Okay, true, yes. However, our time together over the next two weeks is not so much as a defense against the attack, but to make sure that we are Again, well-rooted in the sacred scriptures, and that we understand the sacraments the way that Christ intended them to be understood. Okay? And yes, by extension, we will gain all of those apologetic points, because as we gain the truth, we'll realize those attacking the church from the outside, the aspects that they're missing. So, the sacraments, in general, as we, we spend our first part of the evening together tonight, 
we probably will not get farther than baptism tonight. And that's okay. Because if we understand baptism well, if we're well-rooted in the sacrament of baptism, we will be well-rooted by extension in all of the sacraments and we'll be easily be able to go through them next week. Okay, so my entire goal tonight, get us rooted in the scriptures, in the sacraments in general, and focus our attention on baptism. Maybe say a few things about chrismation. What is a sacrament? Come on, Catholics. I want to talk about to give grace. Right? All, the, all the older folks know that by heart, right, from the Baltimore Catechism. Okay? And I want to consider that definition quickly. And tell you right off the bat, there's nothing wrong with this definition. However, there's something wrong with our understanding of this definition oftentimes. And that's what I want to go, back, go at right at the beginning. And we'll come back to it again. I dare say that for most Catholics, we might rewrite this definition uh, with something like this. First of all, we have three parts to it. Right? An outward sign, instituted by Christ, to give grace. And I think for most Catholics, an outward sign is something of ingredients. We've got to have some words, and we've got to have some matter, and so forth. And we put these things together, we're going to have all the right ingredients to make the sacrament happen. Okay? We might even call it, I mean, go a step further and say a magic formula. I'm going to go after that. Okay? Instituted by Christ. Another one that I think in most, the mind of most Catholics is just, our understanding of it is just flat out wrong. What does it mean that he instituted the sacraments? I think in most of our minds, it means that he invented. He invented the sacraments. Christ instituted them. He said, this is what you have to do to be saved. Okay? Now, he did institute them. But he by no means invented them. And uh, to give grace. I don't know. What does it mean to give grace? What is grace? Yeah. Friends, grace is a fancy term for God's life. God's eternal life. And that's something real. God's eternal life. I would say, uh, maybe to most Catholics, or to some Catholics, to give grace, uh, to avoid hell, maybe, or maybe to help us get to heaven. But do we really have an understanding of what God's life is? As a real principle of action. Okay? Maybe to get to heaven. I have a handy little Catholic dictionary by Atwater. Good thing to have. I think this was put out in 1953. Yes. Okay? And he says this. Sacrament. Latin. Sacramentum. A sacred pledge. A sacred pledge. The words used to translate the Greek mystery. Or mysterion. Mystery. It was used in the Latin to translate a more ancient term that was used to point to what we today call the sacraments, and that term is mystery. It was first used in relationship to the Christian liturgy by Pliny the Younger. You remember Pliny the Younger in his letter to Trajan. We talked about that during our program on Ignatius of Antioch. Do you remember Pliny was sent into Asia Minor to 
see what was going on with the Christians there. Okay, to deal with this new sect. And he wrote back to Trajan and he says, well, they come together uh, early in the morning as the sun rises and they sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. And they bind themselves with an oath, a pledge, a sacrament. Okay? He was observing the Christian Eucharistic liturgy and this is how he described it. It was taken on later in the year 200 by Tertullian, who used it more explicitly as a reference to what we today call the sacraments. In Atwater's definition, he says that the Latin term sacrament refers to a more ancient term, and that is mystery. And so if I turn my page over to his text on mystery, he says this. Mystery is the existence of an unknown element in a thing. Okay, a general term. The existence of an unknown element, something unseen. He gives a second definition, which will take us back to our talk on the Didache. He says, a rite or doctrine held secret from intrusion of the uninitiated. A rite or doctrine held secret from the intrusion of the uninitiated. What's he talking about there? He's talking about that ancient practice in the church by which the person who was being catechized was not told all of the things about the faith. He wasn't put through a year or two year or three year long program on systematic theology, explaining the inner mysteries of God and so forth. Sadly, all too common today. He was told about the mystery of God's plan as it was revealed in the Old Testament. Okay? And it was only at the time of his baptism that the fullness of the faith, the fullness of the mysteries of God, of the sacraments, were revealed to him. We see that even today in our liturgy. Uh, in some of your parish, maybe those preparing for baptism are brought up for a blessing in the middle of the liturgy and they're taken out of Mass. Right? You've seen that happen. Frank here is doing that exact thing over at our parish. Okay, because he's going to be confirmed or chrismated on Easter, God willing. So, that comes, again, from the early church, and that practice of removing people from those most intimate of mysteries, those most intimate of revelations. Okay? And only when they had been baptized would their eyes be opened to the faith, and they would be able to receive the fullness of the truth which God had prepared for them. He goes on regarding that existence of the unknown element. Its existence, that unknown element, is therefore known only by faith. Its nature is never completely known. In the primitive church, mystery in the sense of a profound spiritual truth and act was the word used for what we now call sacrament. And I want to focus on that. In the primitive church, mystery in the sense of a profound spiritual truth and act was the word that we now call a sacrament. Some profound truth that's there that's known only to those that can see through the eyes of faith. And that's exactly the way that we find the word mystery in the New Testament. The word that we now use for sacrament Okay, is in fact never used in the New Testament regarding what we today call the seven sacraments. Some of our Protestant brothers and sisters, ah, 
See? The Catholic Church invented them. Far from it. And we will see quite the opposite of that. The early church applied this term of mystery, or what later would be called sacrament, to what we today call the seven sacraments because of that use of the word mystery in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as a foundation for the truth of the sacramental system as we know it today. I want to come back very quickly to this definition that we have. Again, Catholics, a sacrament is... I think we can work to maybe a fuller definition here. An outward sign. What's supposed to be meant by that? Come on. Something material. Something material. Fine, yes. Something seen, huh? Good. Something that applies and can be understood. Yeah. An outward sign. There's something more. Yeah, I can feel it, but, uh, you know, is it the table an outward sign? It applies to the five senses. It could be an outward sign. It could be if it's an altar in the church. Good. Yes, it applies to the, to the senses, but it has a meaning beyond itself. It's a sign. Think of a stop sign. You see a stop sign. You don't have to read the word stop on it. You know what you're supposed to do. It's an outward sign, a sign of some further reality that is taking place. Instituted by Christ. What do we mean by that? It's instituted by Christ. I think maybe a better word than instituted might be uh, elevated. Elevated by Christ. Christ didn't invent baptism. John the Baptist was on the Jordan River baptizing people before Christ ever walked up to the Jordan River. It was a practice known among the Jews. Jesus didn't invent marriage. He elevated marriage to a new reality. And to give grace. We already talked about that. I think that's the easiest one of all, except, you know, I think we get, again, bogged down in our terminology and and we hear the word grace and we think we have to give, uh, we have to pull out our tomes of systematic theology. Divine life. God's life. And God's life is eternal. It knows no end. And if you have it, you will not die. God's life cannot die. Okay? An outward sign. I mean, I wrote something down, maybe a a definition, maybe this is helpful, maybe it's not. Something which is done that has a meaning and a purpose beyond itself. Lifted up by God to a new level, or elevated by God to a new level, in which that which is signified by the sign actually takes place. You see, this is the difference between a sacrament and a stop sign. I can run a stop sign all day long. But when a sacrament is performed, the reality is made present on earth. Okay? in which those who participate in that which is signified receive the gift of eternal life. I want you to notice how important it's the we could say in, in modern terminology, the sign value is. The sign has to mean something to us. I'm going to quote from a book, Cardinal Jean Danielou's Bible and the Liturgy. I asked uh, Pascal Lamb to, to get it. 
So I would highly recommend you get this book and get it on your shelf. Okay, simply as a reference uh, book. It's a great read through. I loved it anyways. Maybe it'll dry to some people. But uh, The Bible and the Liturgy. This book was fundamental in changing my, my perspective on the church. He says, because they are not understood, the rites of the sacraments often seem to the faithful to be artificial and sometimes even shocking. It is only by discovering their meaning that the value of these rites will once more be appreciated. Because they are not understood, because the sign is, doesn't mean anything to us anymore, 2,000 years later, the rites of the sacraments often seem to the faithful to be artificial. My friends, I would say this gets right to the heart of the liturgical disaster which we find ourselves in today in many parishes. Because the liturgy becomes an artifact, something to be studied, and something to be changed at the whim of the one understanding. And if I don't understand its meaning, I might as well get rid of it. Cardinal Danielu goes on and says, This symbolism, I say it's sign value, is not subject to the whims of each interpreter. It constitutes a common tradition going back to the apostolic age. In other words, the meaning of the sacraments, why we do them the way we do them, is something we received from the apostles themselves. And I would say from Christ himself. And I'd go further and say from the Old Testament itself. This is a patrimony which has been handed on, which is sacred. And it's our duty to begin to understand them again. We will only start to touch on some things today and, and next week. To touch on, to begin to get our mind working in a certain way that we then can apply. I've been studying the sacrament of baptism for, I don't know, seriously for maybe 10 or 15 years. Okay, And I'm still diving into it and realizing more of the beauty of the sacrament as hidden in those signs, what they mean. And it's our goal to get back and to get that perspective again. So, to solve our problem that we're facing today, I would say we need to regain a biblical context. We need to start to see the sacraments in their biblical context. How they would have looked to those walking with Christ along the Jordan River. What it would have meant when Christ gave the Eucharist to the apostles. How they would have understood it, not as something new and being invented by Christ, but something which they understood according to their own patrimony, their own story, their own history. So, let's turn and open our Bibles now for the first time. And I want to look with you at this term mystery, this word that the first Christians took from the sacred scriptures and then applied it to what we now call the seven sacraments. Okay, and see why it was that they used this term as it's found in the scriptures and how it is the foundation, the foundation stone to each of the sacraments and our understanding of those sacraments. So we're going to turn to Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 to 11. 
Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay, okay, great. Lots of good Bible talk there, right? What's he talking about? Notice how he uses the term mystery. It's the mystery of God's plan. The plan of God. This is how St. Paul is using that term mystery. There's a plan which God has, and it has something hidden within it. Something unknown to the uninitiated. Something invisible to the naked eye, and only visible through the eyes of faith. God has a plan. This is the great mystery that's revealed in Jesus Christ. I want you to turn probably in your Bibles one page back to chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What's the plan? To unite all things in him. His, the plan of God Now notice, is it unknown to the apostles? Is it unknown to the Christians? No. It's revealed to them. It's unknown to the world. It's unknown to those that don't have the eyes of faith. But it is revealed to the Christians. And it's a plan which God has. Is it a new plan? No. What type of plan is it? From all eternity. It's the plan of God. And it's to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. We're going to keep that in the back of our head because it's going to come back to us as we're considering the sacraments, the elements of the sacraments, the water and the oil and the bread and people, all of creation in heaven and on earth to be united in Him. Okay, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Here, you probably know the text quite well. Ephesians 5 uh, talks about the sacrament of marriage. We're going to be looking at verse 21 and beyond as far as that, that that text on marriage is concerned. Beautiful text. But we're not going to read that whole thing. We're going to read from verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery. Ah, there it is. St. Paul calling one of the sacraments, marriage, right? A mystery, or what we would today call a sacrament, right? No. Notice what he says. Read that again, Melanie. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. Okay. And you say, Sabatino, but marriage is a sacrament. I say, yes, only by extension of what St. Paul is talking about as a more foundational revelation. And what is he talking about there? What's he say? What is the mystery? Yeah. He says, look, 
You know, you know that text from Genesis on marriage, that a man and a woman shall be united in the marital covenant, and the two will no longer be two, but they will be one flesh. They will be united. And he says, the great mystery is not that that can happen between a man and a woman. The great mystery is that can happen between God and the church. And the church in this context, as he's talking about, you go back and read this, he's talking about the body of Christ. We're going to come back to this idea of the body of Christ regarding baptism. That Christ is joining to himself in this revelation of this great mystery that God has had as the fundamental plan for all creation. That God is bringing this about in Jesus Christ by uniting us to him. We're going to look at one other text in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. Nice and slow, Melanie. Verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man mature in Christ. Okay. And there it is, put very simply. What is the mystery? What's he say? The great mystery, the plan of God from all eternity for his creation, for his creation on heaven, in heaven and on earth is for Christ to be in us, to unite us to him. As St. Peter says, to make us partakers in the divine nature to elevate us to a new level. Exactly what I had said regarding the sacraments. Christ elevates in the sacrament to participate in who and what he is, to make us partakers in the divine nature. And here I would say we enter our study on the sacraments from the right perspective. The plan from God of God from all eternity. Get this drilled into your head is that He loves us. And love always seeks to share itself with another. It's that simple. That's the gospel message that Jesus Christ came to proclaim. That's what He gives us in the church. That's what He gives us in the sacraments. Is a share in His own life. A life which knows no end. I'll read you quickly, (laughs) for the benefit of some of my former... uh, catechumens in the room, those that I instructed on their way into the church, their favorite paragraph, which I made them read over and over and over again, paragraph one, sentence one of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I've read this to you a number of times and I've said the same thing. You think it's important? The first sentence in the entire catechism, and this is what it says, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man. Why? Why, friends? To unite us to him. And she was about to quote it from memory, to make us sharers in his own blessed life. To give us life which knows no end. 
this is the plan of God from the beginning. It's the plan of God in the Old Testament. It's the plan of God in the New. It's the plan of God in the church today. It is the same mystery which God offered to Adam and Eve in paradise. It's the same mystery that we encounter in the flood of Noah as he saved eight in all through the waters of the deluge to bring about a renewal of creation. It's the same mystery which he offered to Israel on Mount Sinai. It's the same mystery that the Maccabees fought about and fought over at the gates of the temple. It's the same mystery which we encounter in the baptism of Christ, and it's the same mystery which we encounter in the church today. I'll go back to, to Cardinal Danielu, who says, The sacraments carry on in our midst the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. Listen to that. The sacraments, you want to know about the sacraments in Scripture? There it is. The sacraments carry on in our midst the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. Name me some great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. Go ahead. Shout them out. The Exodus. Great. The parting of the Red Sea. What else? What about creation? That's a great work of God. What else? Jonah. Jonah. Good. What else? Come on. Dear friends, the flood, flood, fine. Okay? They carry on in our midst the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. You want to experience and see what it was like to cross the Red Sea with walls of water reaching up to the sky? Go attend a baptism up in the baptistry. We're going to talk about that. The sacraments carry on in our midst the great works of God in the old and the new. For example, the flood, the passion, and our baptism show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. And these three phases of God's action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time. The flood, the passion, and our baptism reveal the same divine activity. And that divine activity is the activity of God intervening in creation with His plan. A plan to share His life with us. You want to talk about the elevation of the sacraments, we talk about the fulfillment of what God has begun in the Old Testament. Far from inventing something new, Christ was bringing to completion what God had already begun in the story of salvation throughout the Old Testament. I'll read that quote again and attach another piece to it. The sacraments carry on in our midst the the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. For example, the flood, the passion, and baptism show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. The fact is that the life of of ancient Christianity was centered around worship. And worship was not considered to be a collection of rites meant to sanctify secular life. Friends, is this not how we approach the sacraments in the most, most time? The fact is that the life of ancient Christianity was centered around worship, and the worship was not considered to be a collection of rites meant to sanctify secular life. The sacraments were thought of as the essential events of Christian existence, and of existence itself. 
Hmm? The life of God. As being the prolongation of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. The prolongation, the drawing out, the revealing to us of the great mystery of God's plan as it was revealed to Noah and Moses, as it was revealed in the Jordan River and revealed to us in the sacraments today. The prolongation of the great works of God. And friends, what is the greatest work of God? Okay, you say creation, but it's fulfillment in the passion of Christ. The greatest work of God, where He wrought our salvation. Listen to what the Catechism has to say. His Paschal mystery is a real event that occurred in our history, but it is unique. All other historical events happen once, and then they pass away, swallowed up in the past. The the Paschal mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past, because by His death, He destroyed death. And all that Christ is... All that he did and suffered for all men participates in the divine eternity and so transcends all time while being made present in them all. When Christ became incarnate on earth, he drew up in himself our human nature and our story and our history and made it to participate in who and what he is and what he did to save us. All that he did and suffered for all men participates in the divine eternity and therefore can be made present throughout time. It is possible for us to experience the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as he makes it present to us today. It is not simply a past event. It is that prolongation as Daniel talks about, of the great works of God. It is the fulfillment of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. But Christ's passion does not stand alone. As he says, it draws up all of history to itself. It is Christ's passion which saved Noah in the flood. It is Christ's passion which saved Israel in the Red Sea. It is Christ's passion which saves us in the sacraments. And how is that possible? It is possible because He is God. And when He intervenes in history, the same divine reality is made present to us. And it's the reality of God's love, the gift of His own life, made perfect in His passion, His death, His resurrection, but revealed, say, in shadow or in preparation or as a type in the flood, revealed to us in the crossing of the Red Sea. Okay? Kathy's saying she got it, which means I think I'm probably on the right track. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? Kind of? Okay, I hope so. This idea of the revelation of Christ's passion throughout, let's make it more simple, the revelation of God's love in the Old Testament and the New introduces us into the science of biblical typology. Now, okay, fine, a fancy term, 
It's the study of the similarities in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've done this a number of times. I'm not sure we've explained it as well as we could have, but we've done it with, with, uh, with Father Scalia's program on Mary the New Eve, right? We did it on Holy Women of the Old Testament. Looking at these revelations of God's plan as fulfilled in Mary, yes, fulfilled in the New Testament, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The similarities between the Old Testament and the New. Why is this important? Because for the first Christians, for the Jews, they didn't see themselves in isolation from their story. In fact, they believed, and we read this in the prophets, that God would bring about, bring about their salvation in a way similar to what He had done in the past. And why is that? We see that throughout the whole Old Testament. And why is that? Because the Jews understood that it was the revelation of the same divine plan. And when that revelation takes place, it tends to look the same. Okay? When the Messiah comes, there will be a new creation. When the Messiah comes, there will be a new flood. When the Messiah comes, He will feed us again with the manna that saved our forefathers in the desert. God will reveal Himself as He did to our fathers of old, but He will do it in a new and even greater way. This is what the Jews were looking for. Look, when the Pharisees came to the Jordan River, and they stood there, and they came to John the Baptist, they said, Are you Elijah? You remember that? To us today, I mean, we think, okay, that's Bible talk, right? You know, whatever, strange. You guys understand how weird that is? Are you Elijah? Okay. A guy that lived, uh, what, 700 years prior? Okay. Are you the prophet, they ask him? Okay. Referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18, when Moses told them that God would raise up a prophet like him. Are you the prophet that God told us was coming? They understood that God was going to bring about in their life something similar to what He had done in the past. In fact, He was going to restore to them everything that their forefathers had lost. And that's the fundamental point. That what God had planned for us in the beginning, Christ came to give us back. Jesus Christ is our Savior because He saves us from that which we lost. Do you think it's important that we know what we lost? Yeah. And if we don't know it, we're going to start to make Christ in our own image and remake the sacraments in our own image and according to our own likeness instead of understanding them in relationship to God's plan. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew to give you an example of this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's Jesus speaking. You want to understand our Lord's passion? 
He says, you know, as though raising, uh, raising Lazarus wasn't enough, healing the blind, healing the paralytic, they come up to him and they say, show us a sign. The multiplication of the loaves, okay? They themselves were blind. Huh? Show us a sign. And he says, you faithless generation, I will show you no sign except for one. And you want to know what it's going to be? It's going to be the same sign that Jonah showed you. And what was the sign that Jonah showed them? What was the great sign, the mystery of Jonah? Yeah, he went down and into the waters. Okay, he was covered over, buried in those waters. And three days later, miraculously rose out out of those waters. Man restored in the image and likeness of God. And he went on a mission according to the will of God to preach to the Ninevites, to do what God had planned for him. That's Jesus speaking. If you want to understand the sacraments, we got to go back and look into the Old Testament and see where those sacraments were prepared for, where God showed his, his glory, his mystery, his plan for mankind. And only then will we be able to understand the last chapter in the book the New Testament, the culmination of that gift, okay, and its revelation today in the sacraments. You're with me? Okay. First of all, let's turn quickly. I got about 30 seconds to do the sacrament of baptism. All right? We're going to go to the Gospel of John. Okay? And we're just going to look at a couple quick elements. And I'm going to just give you, I hope, a sense of how you might go studying these things meditating upon these things as we prepare ourselves for the Pascha of Christ, for Easter, for the Passover of Christ. Okay? First of all, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, to be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, you foolish man. He doesn't say that, but he kind of says that. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say it. Now notice Jesus is using the same language, and now he's going to explain himself. Okay? What does it mean to be born again? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here we're introduced into the first two elements of baptism, okay? Water and Spirit. And notice that when one is baptized by water and the Spirit, how does Jesus describe it? What does he say happens to the person? Yeah, they're, they're born again. They're born again. They become what we might call a new creature, a new creation, which is the language that St. Paul is going to pick up. A new creation. Like the old creation, but new. And it has to do with this aspect, these two elements of water and spirit. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. You should memorize Romans chapter 6. It gives you all the basic catechesis you need on the sacrament of baptism. Romans chapter 6. 
refers to what I might call the two fundamental aspects of baptism, which themselves refer to the two fundamental elements of baptism. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay. The word baptize means, from the Greek, means to plunge or immerse. Okay? To plunge or immerse. Into what? Yes, into water. That's the material element. There's a reason why water for the Jews was a symbol of death and a symbol of the tomb. Think the flood. Think the crossing of the Red Sea. To plunge or immerse into Christ's death. And why is it so important that we are plunged and immersed, that we are united into Christ's death? St. Paul will continue. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We were covered over. So that, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, that new creature, that new life that's going to be given to us. And this, these two aspects then of death and what we might call death and resurrection, death and new life, refer to these two elements. That for the Jews and for the early Christians, water was fundamentally a symbol or a sign. We talked about how important these signs are. A sign of death and a sign of the tomb. And why is that? I just mentioned it. Because in their experience, in their life, whenever they encountered massive amounts of water, we might say, in the works of God, lots of people died and were buried in those waters of the flood. Buried in the waters of the crossing of the Red Sea. Okay? Water was for them a symbol of death. And the Spirit of God gives what the Spirit of God gives, namely, eternal life. This is what is taking place, St. Paul says, in baptism. That we are plunged into the baptism to which Christ was plunged into. As he says in the Gospels, as uh, James and John come and says, Lord, will you let us sit at your right hand and on your left in the kingdom? And he says, Are you ready to be baptized into the baptism which I am to be baptized into? And of course, he's speaking of being plunged into his own death. To be baptized into Christ's death so that we might receive newness of life. And why is this so fundamentally important? Jesus Christ came to save us from the fall. And it was in the fall that death was dealt to mankind. God never planned for us to die. And Jesus Christ came to confront death, to deal with death, to bind the power of death over man, and to raise us from the tomb. And this is exactly what takes place, that mystery which is taking place in the sacrament of baptism. Simply put, the mystery of the gift of God's own life. I am going to say that to you over and over again. 
today and next week because it is the fundamental mystery which lays at the root of every sacrament in the New Testament. In every sacrament, God gives us His own eternal life. And it starts in the great gift of baptism. I want to take just a few seconds before we conclude and point out for you, and I'm just going to simply let you draw on your own memory from the Old Testament. And if, I start, if you start to struggle with that memory, you've got to get back there and read the sacred scriptures. The fathers looked then following St. Paul's reference to this, and, and our Lord's reference to this being born again in this new creature, and said, if we're going to understand that new creation, we better understand the old creation, the pattern by which God gave us His life. And take a look at it. In the beginning, there was water covering the face of the abyss. Right? And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, hovered over those waters. The waters were parted by the will of God, by the gift of that Spirit. And what came forth from those waters? A paradise in which man would receive the life of God himself, an image of the church. In the middle of that paradise, God placed man, made in his image and likeness, the Son of God. But we know the story well. Man counted his sonship as nothing. The fathers say that Adam and Eve in the beginning, yes, they were naked according to the clothes we wear here, but that God had clothed them in an even greater robe, the robe they call the robe of glory, the robe of grace. Adam foolishly cast off that gift of grace, that robe of glory. And he was clothed, as we read in the, in the creation story, by God in animal skins. God crafted for him animal skins that man might be clothed according to the nature which he had now received. A nature fallen. A nature which more was akin to the animals than to the Son of God. Okay? Therefore, in baptism, when the child is stripped from his regular clothes, those clothes are taken off as a symbol of the stripping of the old man. He is plunged into the waters of creation. And he is drawn forth from those waters just as Adam and Eve and paradise was drawn forth from those waters in the beginning. And he is clothed once again in the robe of glory. The baptismal robe, the white baptismal robe, wasn't put there to be a cute bib that they put on the kid on baptism. It was to reflect and be a sign of the robe of God's grace. The flood. In the flood, God reversed the creation. And what had formerly been parted was covered over again. All of creation died in those waters of the flood. The water above and the water below became almost as one with a torrential rain. But God had a plan. And it was the same plan He had for Adam and Eve in the beginning. And again, those waters parted. And you remember the story of Noah. Do you remember what bird he sent forth over the, over the waters at the beginning? Raven. A raven. The fathers say he sent a raven out to symbolize the darkness which was over the abyss of creation. 
And only later did he send the dove out, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, which would be the action by which God would recreate the world. And St. Jerome says, Do not think that the waters of the flood receded on their own. They were parted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And man came through those waters to stand on dry ground again, to do what man was supposed to do in the beginning. Noah underwent a baptism in the flood. Israel crossing the Red Sea. Moses sings his hymn in thanksgiving to God, and he says, By a blast of thy nostrils, by the breath of God, the Ruach, the Spirit of God, the same word in the Hebrew, by the Spirit of God, the waters were parted, just as they were parted at creation, just as they were parted at the flood. And mankind came through those waters. Moses and Israel, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, were baptized in the Red Sea. And they came forth from those waters. Pharaoh and the Egyptians died in the waters, being a symbol of a fallen man. And Moses and Israel came to Mount Sinai to stand before God like Adam before the fall standing on the Jordan, edge of the Jordan River, our Lord entered into those same waters. And He reached down into that symbolic tomb. And who did He meet there, the fathers tell us? He met the ruler of death, the place where sinful man had died and been covered over. And He found His creation again. And he parted those waters. And the dove came down again, the Spirit of God. And once again, man stood as a son of God on earth. This is the mystery which is revealed to us in the sacrament of baptism. The sacrament of God's gift of His own life to us, by which He reveals to us the plan of God's creation in the beginning. And by which He brings it to fulfillment now, in the church. I'll leave you with this. As we look to the other sacraments next week, we will see that plan of God revealed as man stands once again in creation, in paradise. I have a quotation I want to read you, if I can find it. It's from St. Gregory of Nyssa. Speaking to the catechumens about to be baptized, he says this, You are outside of paradise, O catechumens. You share in the exile of Adam, our our first father. Now the door is opening. Return from whence you came forth. We will find next week that each of the seven sacraments are the gift of God as He had planned for Adam and Eve in the beginning, of which He had revealed to Noah, to Moses, to the Maccabees, to the apostles, and he reveals it and gives it to us today. Okay? We're going to take about a three-minute break. My understanding is that until about the 11th century, uh, these seven sacraments were not codified as as they are now. Up to that point, uh, my understanding is that Christians mainly understood sacramentals as opposed to sacraments. Could you, could you give a little explanation yeah. of the difference? Yeah, I'd I say you're right. Um, 11th, I was looking, I was actually just reading on it. I can't remember. I, 
Uh, it seems to stick into my head that it was the Council of Trent. We probably shouldn't have this on recording because I probably could be wrong. But, um, but it was the Council of Trent that in the West, the, uh, the seven sacraments were codified. The Orthodox um, confirmed the seven sacraments or, or as a, say, to a certain extent officially um, uh, in the 17th century, if my memory serves me correctly. Quite late. So your point is a good one. Um, what were the understanding of the sacraments as individuated seven sacraments uh, prior to that? Um, depending on the church father, you're going to get different lists. I like your point about sacramental, except I wouldn't want to say de-elevate the Christian's understanding of the sacraments as sacraments. I would just say that their view of the sacraments was quite broad in comparison to our modern-day practice of the memorization we have of the individuated sacraments and the definitions we have. They understood the sacramental system very much like we just saw the, the, the Scriptures reveal it to us, that the entire created order was to be, in Christ, sacramentalized. In fact, the Catechism makes it very clear that Christ is the great sacrament. He is the one who has, say, if we want to say, hidden within Him divine life. And it was only in Him and through Him that the sacraments then come into the church. I like to think of the seven sacraments as the kind of arteries of the body of Christ by which the different parts of the body live. Now notice, in an artery, it's the same blood flowing through. In every sacrament, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want to say, what does confirmation do? It gives you eternal life. What does uh, marriage do? It gives you eternal life. All of the sacraments give us the same mystery and yet revealed to the different parts of the body according to their capacity to receive them. Each of us, as St. Paul says, uh, has a different, uh, different role or different part of the body. One is a foot, one is an ear, one is an eye. Each one of us receives the sacraments in, say, in his own way according to his place within the body of Christ. That, that's beyond what you're asking so I would, just in general, I'd say, yes, but more than sacramental. Okay? They understood the whole of the gift of the life of the church in terms of the great mystery of God's gift of his life to us. God has planned to divinize creation. To divinize it. To make creation shine with his own life. And this is exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We're going to talk next week about the tree of life in the midst of the garden. It was God's plan to feed man through the created order and for man to receive eternal life from a tree. Divinized creation. Divinized creation. And I'd say that's what the early Christians understood about it. And it doesn't knock the definition of the seven sacraments at all. Rather, I would say it elevates our understanding of them. The church comes to an understanding, a fuller understanding throughout her history, okay, in the life of the Spirit, to be able to discern these things. But what I'm afraid of, that today, 
We see the seven sacraments in isolation, and that's the danger. They're not seven magic formulas. Maybe you already asked this, but then what's the point of having seven sacraments if it's just all God's grace? And it's like, you already get everything at baptism, then you're all set. Yeah, I would say, first of all, notice, notice when we talk about the, the say, uh, just coming to my mind, the, the sacrament of holy orders. The first thing the church says is, we have a priesthood of the faithful. Get that first, right? That through baptism, that's given to you. But now, a further revelation of that is given through the sacrament of orders. Or a further revelation of that mystery is given in chrismation or confirmation. A further revelation of that mystery. And so, I like to think of that relationship between a husband and wife. I don't tell my wife, I love you, and I walk out the door. Right? I tell her, I love you, and then I give her a kiss. I tell her, I love you, and I, uh, you know, I make the bed. Well, I shouldn't, I don't really do that so much, I should. All right. You see what I'm saying is that, that God gives us that gift of his life in so many different ways and in different aspects. And that's where the sacramental part comes in that's so beautiful that everything is to be divinized. The, uh, we tied the relics of dead, the dead bones of the saints can heal you because God desires to communicate his life with his creation. He loves us. He loves his creation. If you, get, if you know nothing about anything of the, of the faith at all except that God loves us, you know everything there is to know. It's simply a matter of applying that mystery to the faith, and to the church, and to our walk with God. Okay, I don't know how to phrase this as a question, so just respond, please. Okay. You said that um, God's acts in the Old Testament, the Jews were looking for that to be redone in a new and greater way. Yeah. So the flood and the passion, I know that's not the Old Testament, but the flood and the passion naturally grab one's attention. Fear, horror, sacraments usually leave us yawning. Okay, say it again. Fear and horror, and the sacraments leave us yawning? Yeah. Oh, that's too nice. That's too easy of a question. Okay, well... <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I say I could get myself into trouble of going after the situation we find ourselves in liturgically in the church today. Sadly, be, and I would say because of what Cardinal Daniel is talking about, that, that I gotta, let me just go back to that, that one quotation. Because they're not understood, the rights of the sacraments often seem to the faith artificial. And this, I would dare say, is the thing that, that broke the camel's back in the liturgical reforms. Because they weren't understood, then why keep them? And that is the exact opposite approach that we should have. If they're not understood, we should seek to understand them. I consider myself very blessed to, to uh, be a Melkite Greek Catholic. Because... Our liturgy is so rich. Our liturgy is so rich and the sacramental system is so rich. I could never in my wildest imagination understand the sign, the significance of everything that's going on. There is no way. There is, it's so rich. And I think your experience, what you say is the sacraments oftentimes leave us yawning. And I would say we are the product of a, of a problem. 
Okay? And it's our job, especially the Roman Catholics that are among us here, it's your job, it's my job also as teaching you to seek to understand the tradition and its richness. And if you go back and you, and you study that tradition, far from being something that you don't want or you don't understand, it is that the, the prayers of the liturgy, the sacraments as they were celebrated were just dripping with imagery and but, okay, let me go one thing further. The other problem of why we yawn is because even with what we have, we don't know the Old Testament. And so, when we do see things which should spark in our, in our memory things, they don't. Okay? And that's something that's under our control. I want to read you quickly from the, uh, the liturgy... Of, uh, of, Easter, of the Easter Vigil and the blessing of water. Listen to this. Father, you give us grace through sacramental signs which tell us the wonders of your unseen power. Okay, how many of you ever attended uh, Easter Vigil before? Okay. I'm going to read this to you, and I think for the first time in your life, you might stop yawning. In baptism, we use your gift of water, which you have made a rich symbol of grace, of the grace you give us in the sacrament. At the very dawn of creation, your Spirit breathed on the waters, making them the wellspring of all holiness. The waters of the great flood, you made a sign of the waters of baptism that make an end of sin and a new beginning of goodness. You freed the children of Abraham through the slavery of Pharaoh, bringing them dryshod through the waters of the Red Sea to be an image of the people set free in baptism. It's beautiful. That's the current rite said in the Easter Vigil for the blessing of water. It's absolutely gorgeous. The problem is that we hear Moses crossing dry shot and we think, Bible talk. Immediately before our mind should come, the walls, could you imagine, standing on the edge of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army coming at you, And Moses saying, follow me. And lifting his staff, and the father saying, when he lifted his staff, he cut the sea in half, and the waters split. Okay? And the modern scholars say, well, you know, they couldn't have quite done that because, you know, we don't believe that can happen. So they must have gone through the real shallow part, and then there was a wind which kind of made it kind of dry. Nonsense! Moses split the Red Sea. And let me tell you, would you have followed him into the depths of the sea with walls coming up on either side of you of water and walked through that with an army at your rear? You want to understand what happens at baptism? That's what happens at baptism. Satan is on a track with his demons to take us off of what we're about to accomplish, namely the freedom from the slavery to sin. As the, as the Israelites were freed from their slavery in Egypt. And they took a step of faith. And they followed Moses. Not a man dressed in great robes and a king and so forth. Not with any assurance that they were going to make it out of the other side. And they walked behind him. And they went through that sea. And Moses took his staff, the father say, and he drew those waters back, finishing the sign of the cross over the waters. And down went Pharaoh, the representative of Satan and his army. 
into that sea to be buried over. You want to understand what happens in baptism? That happens in baptism. We should stop yawning. Since the word sacrament doesn't appear in the Bible, when did the church start to use the word sacrament instead of mystery? Yeah, I had mentioned that. Plenty of the younger, um, in the year about 105, used it. Now, he wasn't a Christian. He used it to describe what the Christians were doing liturgically. Okay? And Tertullian picked up on that in the year right around 200 and used it then more specifically about... And then, now, of course, that's in the Latin West, because in the East, they're not speaking Latin, right? And they continue to use that term mystery. We continue to use that today. We, we call them the mysteries of God, the holy mysteries. That's why I titled the program The Mysteries of God, the Sacraments and Sacred Scripture. Okay? Uh, this is the more ancient term, and when was it starting to apply? Right from the beginning. Look, even in Paul, look how close he is. with when he's, I, I made a big distinction saying, Paul's not talking about marriage. Well, no, he is talking about marriage. He's just talking about the marriage by which our marriage between man and woman is related. Okay? So that it's an easy step then, and, 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 you know, it's just a matter of developing how specifically we start to talk about the sacraments individually then. Harking back to early on in your presentation, and forgive me if I got this wrong in the first place, I thought I understood you to say Christ did not invent the sacraments. Am I right or am I wrong? You are absolutely right. Okay. But inasmuch as Christ is God... Yeah. Why did you say that? Okay, fine. What I meant, okay, yeah, fair, fair enough question. What I meant was, when Christ came incarnate among us, he didn't say, if you add pepperoni and cheese and bread, you're going to get a pizza. If you add these words and water and a person, you're going to get baptism. Right? Not at all. Baptism was already in place among the Jews. Christ took that which was already in place and elevated it, elevated it to a new level by which that would, be, would participate, would be a vehicle by which he would deliver his own life to us. And I'll go further. He was already delivering that life to us in baptism in the Old Testament, but not in its fullness. Not in the Son of God. And that's the great gift of Jesus Christ, that now those of us who are baptized are baptized into Christ, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Go back and read that text over and over and over again. You should memorize it. Baptized into Christ. We are no longer what we were. We are the children of God. We are Christians. Little Christs. All right, thank you for coming tonight. See you next week. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.